0: Wow. <coughs> <coughs> progressive voice of minnesota here on the thursday edition of fyi politics with brett johnson just you and me today no guests lined up so you're gonna get me as well as my producer patrick on the other side of the glass carrying you through the show today welcome your phone calls though at 952-946-6205 952-946-6205 patrick you're ready to carry this ship today you and me no guests Let's do it. Let's absolutely do it. All right. Here's the plan for today. Uh, Something really got to me when I was reading through the news today, talking about those two special elections in Georgia for those U.S. Senate seats. I'll read partially from this AP article later on in the show, but it completely sums up a lot of the problems that Democrats are going to experience over the next few years with Donald Trump now being out of office. We'll get to that in the second half of the show. Also want to talk about who Biden should be putting in his cabinet and whether he should be picking current elected officials to be members of his presidential cabinet. We'll get to that into the next segment. But first, I've well, got to give you an update on what's happening with COVID-19. The stats continue to be very, very depressing in our state. Today, we had 7,228 positive results that came from a total of 48,513 completed tests. If you do the math on that, it means we have a daily positivity rate of 14.9%. But that number is actually a little deceiving. That positivity rate is really a lot higher, and here's why. Those 48,000, roughly 48,000 completed tests only came from about 25,000 people. The reason why is that people are often tested more than once, so the test positivity rate when dividing positives by people tested is really 28.9%. That is an insane number right there. 28.9% of people essentially who have taken a test for COVID in Minnesota have now come back with a positive result. So when you see that daily positivity rate, keep in mind that's only from the overall number of tests. But as Bring Me the News points out in their piece that, well, oftentimes people are tested more than once. So really that positivity rate per person, 28.9%. That is an ugly number. Also today, we reported 39 deaths the state has. Here's another insane stat about that. 39 deaths today, but the state has reported so far 336 deaths in the first 12 days of November. That's compared to 423 during the entire month of October. So we are on pace to unfortunately shatter that number from October. Number of patients hospitalized in Minnesota with COVID has more than doubled in the last three weeks, going from 580 on October 24th to a little more than 1,300 as of today. Of course, these Spikes have led to more school districts switching to distance learning models among the school districts that have decided to switch. Our two big ones here in the metro area, Bloomington and Hopkins, announced plans to transition their students to distance learning as COVID-19 cases rise across Minnesota. According to Kirk Schneidwan, he is the executive director of the Minnesota School Boards Association. Those districts likely going to be joined by many others in the coming days and weeks. In fact, it was announced today that Duluth is going to an all-virtual model after a hybrid start to the school year. So yeah, as of today, got Duluth, Bloomington, and Hopkins going to an all-online model. Now, COVID is really ravaging northeastern Minnesota. In fact, it's gotten so bad in northeastern Minnesota, Itasca County has completely given up on doing contract tracing. They're not even doing contact tracing anymore in Itasca County simply because cases are spiking at such a high rate. Nearly half of all St. Louis County residents say they know someone who has COVID-19, and less than a dozen critical care hospital beds remain available in all of northeastern Minnesota. Think about that for a second. St. Louis County, of course, encompasses Duluth and other portions of northeastern Minnesota, and nearly half of all residents in St. Louis County say they know someone who has had covid Continuing on, Mayo Clinic Health System says its hospitals in the northwest region of Wisconsin are now operating at full capacity. System officials say 100% of their beds are at full capacity in the region, which encompasses Barron, Bloomer, Eau Claire, Osseo, and Menominee, Wisconsin. Whew, that is a very sobering report of what's happening with COVID-19 in Minnesota and in western Wisconsin. That still blows my mind that Itasca County has just completely given up on doing any contact tracing. And then you have half of the residents in St. Louis County, which again includes Duluth, saying that they know someone who has COVID-19. Now, in a second, I'm going to get to some polling data that kind of shows why we've been experiencing that this fall. But let's talk about what's been happening at the state legislature with COVID-19 course, today we did have a special session that took place since Governor Tim Walls did extend his emergency powers. And you can see Republicans starting to back off from their original statement saying that the pandemic is the emergency part of the pandemic is over. Got to make sure I uh, paraphrase Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka correctly. That was what he said a few weeks ago. The emergency portion of the pandemic is over. Well, now he's kind of changed his tune. This is a tweet from Republican State Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. Maybe the most disingenuous tweet of all time. Here it is I've always said COVID is serious. The surge we prepared for is now happening in spite of restrictions, and I'm glad we helped prepare for it. <laughs> the Senate can move quickly again to address a COVID crisis, but continued emergency powers leave the decision making to one man only. Yeah, there's certainly a lot wrong with that, including the fact that somehow Gazelka is uh, taking credit for the fact that Minnesota has prepared for COVID-19, even though he's pretty much been completely standing in the way. And then this part here at the end where he says, we can't leave these emergency powers to one man only. Well, that's not exactly happening. It's not like... Tim Walls is just sitting in some room alone and by himself and arbitrarily coming up with emergency measures with COVID-19. He's usually consulting a number of healthcare professionals when he's coming up with these restrictions that are going to be put in place. And by the way, there are a lot of people who work in the healthcare field that think the recent restrictions put in place by Governor Walls don't even go far enough. By the way, continuing with Republicans and kind of backing off on their earlier stances that, well, COVID-19 is nothing serious now and the emergency part of the pandemic is over. Republicans in the State House of Representatives are even backing off from some of their ideas of trying to strip Governor Tim Walls of his emergency powers. By the way, both the Senate and the House did adjourn today, and they did not even vote on stripping Walls of his emergency powers. They also didn't remove any commissioners, thankfully. But this was an idea floated by one member of the Republican caucus in the State House of Representatives. This is according to Theo Keith of Fox 9. House Republicans say they will not force a vote on Governor Walz's emergency powers. Instead, Republican Representative Barb Haley says she'll introduce a bill to subject each of Walz's emergency orders to an up or down vote after 30 days. Bill, unlikely to pass, though. So, yeah, already they're kind of backing off from this instead of having these straight up or down votes in terms of trying to strip Governor Walls of his powers. Now they're saying, well, eh, we'll just give him an up and down vote on every single measure he takes every 30 days. So already we're seeing Republicans start to back down from uh, what they were saying, uh, saying that we need to loosen our restrictions and we need to get rid of the emergency powers for the governor. House Republicans detoured around questions on whether their change in tone is a reckoning with the seriousness of the pandemic and their party's downplaying of the virus. This is again from Theo Keith of Fox 9. Republican leaders say they want people to wear masks, including on the House floor, where some members of the Republican caucus have not. So certainly the change of tone from our Republican representatives and senators at the state legislature including the fact Paul Gazelka saying, I've always taken COVID serious. Yeah, very funny there, Paul Gazelka. <laughs> Can you believe that, Patrick, that Paul Gazelka has the gall to go out there and say something like that now that I've always taken it serious and I take credit for helping us prepare for the surge we're now experiencing. Yeah, they are starting to definitely backtrack and try to find their way out of being on the wrong side of history, aren't they?
1: I think it also help if they don't have elections to pander to anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's probably key as well. In fact, I'm guessing that's a reason why they adjourned the special session on the very same day it was convened, since, as we had seen earlier this year, yeah, those special sessions went on for a few days as uh, Republicans tried all sorts of tactics, like, again, voting on emergency powers and then trying to remove some of the commissioners from different state agencies. Now, continuing to talk about with what's happening with COVID-19, Gallup released some polling data that I think shows why what's happening right now is happening. They asked a couple of questions in regards to COVID, and they give us some pretty stark answers as to why we're experiencing a spike, not just in Minnesota, but around the entire country. So the first question they asked is that, If your state was to implement another stay-at-home order, how likely would you be to abide by that stay-at-home order? So back in late March and early April, 67% of respondents said, yeah, I would abide by a stay-at-home order, while only 15% of people said, no, I would disobey it. So again, 67% said, yeah, I would do a stay-at-home order back in late March and early April. Guess where that number now is today? 49%. So, 18 percentage points, fewer people say that they would abide by a stay-at-home order. By the way, the number of people who say they would not abide by a stay-at-home order, that number has more than doubled, going from 15% in late March to now 37% here in November. One of the other questions that was very striking was uh, asking about social distancing measures. So, what Gallup did is they asked people, what protection measures have you taken over the past 24 hours? And the percentage of people who said they were completely isolated back in March in the past 24 hours when the question was asked, 69% back in late March and early April. That number now has gone down by more than 50%. Now only 36% of respondents have said that over the past 24 hours they have remained completely isolated. So overall what we're seeing is People are just getting fatigued out from COVID-19. And I don't necessarily blame people from being tired of COVID-19. It's been going on for what now? Pushing eight or nine months? Ultimately, what we should have done back in March and April, to shut down the entire country for four, six, or maybe eight weeks, do exactly what Australia and New Zealand did, do a short but painful shutdown, then you can emerge and largely have things go back to normal. In fact, New Zealand is almost entirely back to normal. But here in the United States, of course, at the federal level, we didn't have really any sort of national strategy. And states basically just went, state-by-state determining stay-at-home orders, and you can't really do a piecemeal approach because, let's say, Minnesota issues a stay-at-home order. Well, if Wisconsin does it, does not issue a stay-at-home order, well, then you can have people crossing borders and still end up spreading the disease. So overall, you need a national strategy. We didn't do it back in March and April when people, according to that polling data I brought up from Gallup, were largely on board with these emergency measures. We had a chance to do it back in March and April. Now it's largely too late since, well, according to that poll, a lot of people are saying they're not going to even abide by a stay-at-home order if one were put in place in their own state. Just an entirely messy situation. And Patrick, I don't even know if it would work at this point to implement like a four to six week stay at home order nationally when Joe Biden takes office. I feel like it's almost too late right now where people are so fatigued by what's what's happening. They're probably not even going to obey that order. We had our chance earlier this spring. We didn't take advantage of it.
1: I still think it'd be interesting for the constitutional side of it to see how that would play out in court, because, you know, there would be 30 35 states that would immediately mm-hmm. take that to court um you can guess they'd pretty much be mostly red states and maybe a few like wisconsin where the legislatures can probably override the governor on that but uh, uh what i was gonna say was uh yeah it, it's definitely just where we're long past that point i think
0: Yeah. And
1: you brought up a good
0: point, too, where maybe
1: even if we did
0: try to implement some sort of national stay-at-home order back in March and April, you're right. There probably would have been a number of states for political purposes that would have tried to defy that stay-at-home order. And in fact, expanding on that, even if you were to have a President Joe Biden implement a national stay-at-home order next spring – How likely is it it would even stay in place? Because politically, it would be beneficial for Republican governors to say, "Eh, we're not going to follow this order simply because of the political ramifications. Yeah, it's uh, depressing how it works in this country. And really, at this point, our only hope is a vaccine. And as many health experts can tell you, a vaccine should not be your only tool to fight a pandemic. Michael Osterholm, who is, of course, at the University of Minnesota and part of Joe Biden's uh, advisory council on COVID-19, is recommending we do a four to six week stay at home order. And he's adding the stipulation that everyone should get paid by the government what their normal salary would be. And in fact, his idea for a stay at home order is not to do what we did earlier this spring. It would be a much more strict stay at home order where you would have only the absolutely most essential workers uh, going to their place of employment since I believe when Minnesota did our stay-at-home order, 78% of our workers were classified as essential. And yeah, that's probably not going to do a whole lot of good. So like the idea that Osterholm is proposing, but not sure people and governments uh, around the different states in the country would necessarily even follow that order. It's too late into the process, unfortunately, and people are just overall completely fatigued by covid i don't know maybe that can make maybe people will start to sober up to the idea <laughs> once we have more of these numbers continue to skyrocket as osterholm says we're in for as he says a covid hell winter where our numbers are going to spike even more from where they are today 952 946 6205. 952 946 952 946 6205. It's easy for me to say our phone number. Uh, we're going to take a break and come on back and talk about who should be in Joe Biden's presidential administration. We'll get to that coming up next here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. M 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, FYI politics with Brett Johnson. Well, according to a new report by In These Times, Bernie Sanders, of course, the Vermont Senator and big progressive figure, Bernie is actively making calls to Joe Biden's transition team and other allies in politics and the labor world, indicating that he wants the job of the Secretary of Labor. Other candidates include former deputy Leper, former deputy labor secretary Seth Harris. He was a person who authored a paper that argued for creating a third type of worker classification beyond employee and independent contractor to basically allow gig economy company workers to sidestep the tricky business of misclassifying their workers. So Bernie really lobbying, apparently, for this job of being the Secretary of Labor. Now, I have no doubt Bernie Sanders would probably make a great Secretary of Labor, but there's one problem with it, though, and this is something that I think progressives and other Democrats need to keep in mind when Joe Biden is putting together his potential cabinet. Don't put people who are currently holding elected office in your cabinet. There's a lot of reasons why. If you put someone in, whether it's Bernie Sanders or an Amy Klobuchar, you're going to create an open seat and a special election. And to be honest, you never know what can happen in those special elections. Go back and look at what happened in 2010 when the Massachusetts U.S. Senate seat was vacated. Massachusetts, one of the bluest states in the entire country. Guess what happened in that special election? It went Republican. Even Republicans have experienced the same thing under Donald Trump. 2017, when Jeff Sessions was promoted to U.S. Attorney General, that created a special election in that state, and lo and behold, Democrat Doug Jones won that seat. So even in the most partisan of states and districts, you run the risk of creating open seats when you decide to make elected officials part of your cabinet. Now, with Bernie Sanders, I suppose he would be better than this other guy being considered for the job. That would be Seth Harris, who wants to create this third classification of employees slash independent contractors. Not really sure how I feel about that, but I feel like Bernie Sanders would be a whole lot more effective in the U.S. Senate than serving in a Joe Biden administration in their cabinet. Keep in mind, Joe Biden probably only going to serve one term, so Bernie Sanders if he were to be confirmed as labor secretary, could be out of a job by 2025. I think he can do a whole lot more good for the country while serving in the U.S. Senate. And like I brought up, even though Vermont is a very blue state, you never know what can happen in some of these open seats. By the way, two other top progressive groups, including the Justice Democrats and the Sunrise Movement, which is a group of youth climate change activists, have urged President-elect Joe Biden to fill his cabinet with their allies. They recommended Sanders to lead the Labor Department, Elizabeth Warren to helm the Treasury Department, Representative Barbara Lee of California to serve as the Secretary of State, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison to lead the Justice Department, Rashida Tlaib to oversee the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Pramila Jayapal to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. Again, no doubt that these people would do a great job serving in a Joe Biden cabinet. But again, think about all these empty seats that you would leave vacated that would have a special election. They brought up how these progressive groups want Keith Ellison to lead the Justice Department. Yeah, Keith Ellison would do a good job leading the Justice Department more than likely, but Would you really want to risk having a Republican state attorney general in our state? We would have another open seat in 2022. And you know Republicans would certainly be gunning at that open seat. So when you're looking at people who could potentially be part of a Joe Biden administration, uh, do think this through because you run the risk of putting Republicans in office when you create these open seats. And by the way, Republicans know this as well. If they've taken some measures in Minnesota to protect against uh, Amy Klobuchar potentially becoming attorney general, it's actually a really brilliant strategy that Senate Republicans in Minnesota are considering. So I'll walk you through this entire scenario. And once I get to the end, you might realize that this is actually pretty brilliant what they're planning. So according to sources, Senate Republicans in Minnesota are going to install DFL state Senator David Tomasoni as president of the Senate. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, why would a Republican-controlled state Senate install a Democrat to be the president of the Senate? By the way, that's largely a ceremonial position. Well, here's the reason why. Republicans are trying to proactively maneuver around Governor Tim Walls, creating an opportunity for a special Senate election and a Republican seat. Now, here's why. The rumor is that Governor Walls, if Amy Klobuchar were to be named the Attorney General, the rumor is that Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan would then be appointed to fill Amy Klobuchar's U.S. Senate seat. And that would mean the lieutenant governor's position is open, and that goes to whoever the president of the Senate is. Now, right now, the president of the Senate is Republican Senator Jeremy Miller, who holds a seat in Winona, which is a very potential competitive Senate district. So just walking you through the entire scenario, let's say Amy Klobuchar is named attorney general. That means Governor Tim Walls has to replace Amy Klobuchar in the Senate. Let's say he names Peggy Flanagan the current lieutenant governor. Peggy Flanagan, of course, has to vacate her lieutenant governor's position. That would be taken by the president of the Senate, the state Senate that is. That's Jeremy Miller, a Republican from Winona. And the concern Republicans in the Minnesota Senate have is that Jeremy Miller's seat is very competitive. And if he has to give up his Senate seat to serve as lieutenant governor, that all of a sudden creates a pickup opportunity for Democrats. So that brings me to the fact that Republicans are looking at promoting DFL Senator David Tomassoni to be president of the Senate. Not only would that mean that, well, they wouldn't lose a potential Senate seat, but Tomassoni himself actually represents a relatively competitive seat in northeastern Minnesota. So if you go through that whole chain of command that I talked about just a moment ago, where Amy becomes the Attorney General, Peggy Flanagan becomes the new Senator, and then we have, let's say now, David Tomassoni becoming the Lieutenant Governor, he now has an open seat in a potential competitive district, which could be a pickup opportunity for Republicans. So... (laughs) This is another example where Republicans are oftentimes better at playing politics than Democrats. They're thinking ahead, and I give them credit for it. It's weird to have a DFL Senate president, even though the chamber is controlled by Republicans, but they're planning ahead, and give them credit on that as much as I am not a big fan of it. All right, let's take a break and come on back with more news. I got to talk about what's happening in this Georgia election, these two U.S. Senate elections in Georgia. I was reading through this article in the AP, and it basically just sums up the problems that Democrats are going to have with their campaign strategy in that state. Look into that and your phone calls up next here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Brett Johnson. Look for some light snow throughout today with a high near 30, tonight clear with a low around 14, Friday sunny with a high near 34, and Saturday partly sunny with a high around 41. The Great Wall Restaurant offers one of the most extensive Chinese menus in the Twin Cities. They specialize in Sichuan and Peking dishes, plus they have hot and sour soup and pan-fried dumplings and much more. Stop by the Great Wall's Dino location or call for takeout as well. You can find more information at eatlocalminnesota.com. Politics with Brett Johnson. Catherine chiming in on the Facebook feed saying that she agrees that people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are going to be much more effective staying in the U.S. Senate than serving in a Joe Biden cabinet. And going to what I was talking about here in Minnesota, how our local state Republicans are already planning ahead for Amy Klobuchar potentially becoming Attorney General and then Peggy Flanagan taking her spot in the Senate. Again, it's a brilliant strategy and they're thinking ahead rather than leaving a potential special state Senate election in a competitive Republican seat. They're thinking, "Eh, well, let's make that competitive seat in a Democratic district instead. Give them credit. They're thinking ahead. And even talking about the federal level, how we could potentially see a whole bunch of Democrats from the House and the Senate get promoted to a Joe Biden cabinet. I bet you right now Mitch McConnell is thinking about that and is probably even encouraging Joe Biden and other Democrats to say, hey, you know, what? Uh, promote a whole bunch of your senators. Let's put them in your cabinet. Mitch McConnell probably wouldn't be thrilled about having Bernie Sanders as the Labor Secretary, but I think he would love the opportunity to have a special Senate election in the state of Vermont. Or if you put Elizabeth Warren in charge of the Treasury, I'm sure Mitch McConnell would love to have an open seat in Massachusetts and another potential Republican pickup. And like I said, back in 2010, no one thought Massachusetts could ever elect a Republican senator. Lo and behold, they did with Scott Brown. Same thing happened in Alabama, where that should have been a ruby red state. Instead, Doug Jones was able to win that seat as a Democrat back in 2017. So when it comes to special elections, there is no such thing as a safe seat and Republicans see that. So I would not be surprised whatsoever if Mitch McConnell is sitting there and encouraging Biden to nominate a whole bunch of Democratic representatives and Democratic senators to some of these cabinet position posts. I'll get to what's happening in Georgia in just a second, but we got full phone lines right now. And I don't know, Patrick, apparently our signal must only be going out to Fridley today as our next two callers both hail from the great town of Fridley. Let's start things off with Dennis. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today?
2: Hi. I'm wondering why Peggy Flanagan is the only name being thrown around as far as a potential replacement for Amy. There have to be other people available in the state of Minnesota to fill that seat.
0: Yeah, if that were to potentially happen, I'm with you. There are lots of other qualified names that you could probably put in there to fill that U.S. Senate seat. But ultimately... Don't put Amy as the Attorney General in the first place, because guess what? Even if you put someone other than Peggy Flanagan as a replacement for Amy Klobuchar, you still have another special election in 2022, and you never know how those can go, so... I have no idea how well Amy would do as the U.S. Attorney General, but it's not worth the political risk. I'm sure Joe Biden can find someone else who's just as qualified that is currently not an elected official. Appreciate the phone call, Dennis. Let's keep going with the phones. We got Mark in Fridley. Hey, Mark, what are you thinking about today?
2: Well, what I'm thinking about is Tulsi Gabbard as a Secretary of Defense and Andrew Yang has got to be incorporated some way. But I'm more concerned about the people that Biden is already talking about to be on his cabinet. Number one is a governor um, out of the East Coast. uh, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Raimondo. And she's the front runner for the Secretary of the Treasury. And she's a hedge fund, Wall Street, big banker, lover, anti-labor. And, you know, when this stuff starts happening, People are going to have to respond and push back and fight back because the people that lost their seats, like Colin Peterson, are people that didn't support Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. Everybody that was a Democrat that backed the Green New Deal and the uh, Medicare for all or national health care system won their race nationally so that's an indicator and the other thing is that you've got all of these people that popped their cherry and voted for the first time this year and if you burn them they're not going to come back so mm-hmm. what we need to, what we need to talk about is why are you considering putting another lobbyist what you know there should be no lobby we should be talking about who we shouldn't put in there we shouldn't be putting The old Clinton people, we shouldn't be putting the old Obama people. You know, they're talking about Rahm Emanuel. They're talking about uh, um, Susan Rice and Samantha Power. And, you know, we need to shake this. We need to shake things up because, you know, we won the presidency, but we got killed, um, you know, with with the loss of House seats, and we still didn't make up headway. And that's another reason the polls were wrong. They said that this was going to be a a blue wave. But the thing that I'm concerned about is Joe Biden, and anybody can look this up, go to YouTube. And, and again, what, what I would recommend is listening to a guy named Jimmy Dore, J-I-M-S-Y. Oh, yeah, Jimmy's great, yeah. Jimmy is great. Go on the Internet and look at a couple of Jimmy Dore segments because you need a 360-degree uh, viewpoints of opinions. And, and Jimmy Dore tells the truth. And that's why he's not getting picked up, you know, or is, is, is more better known nationally. But you can go back all of the times throughout Joe Biden's 40-year Senate career where he described very clearly that he wants to cut Medicare and Social Security uh, as a Democrat. And when you see the overlay of his repeated commentaries Talking about come on people, we gotta we gotta dummy up, we gotta get smart. Come on, man. We gotta have cuts to social security. We gotta have that's the only way we're gonna get, you know. No, that's not at all true. Seventy two percent of all Americans, Democrats and Republicans, want government run health care like the rest of the world has. Eighty seven percent of Democrats support Medicare for all. So, the people we put into place, Tulsi Gabbard would be an excellent Secretary of Defense. And speaking of Armistice Day, which is what we should go back and call Veterans
0: Day. Yep, let's go one more point here, Mark, because I've got to get some other point. callers.
2: Right. Is that we need to. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is, came out on the burn pits that killed Joe Biden's son, Bo, and millions millions of civilians and american soldiers we need to talk about those types of things and and you know somebody like andrew yang we've got to incorporate him into a physician commerce secretary um you know so but we can't let him put in more political connected wall street linked hacks that are going to do the opposite of what they told us they were going to do
0: all right. Appreciate the phone call there, Mark. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty tired of having the uh, same recycled people we saw from the Clinton administration ending up back in the cabinet, as I think uh, Joe Biden's uh, chief of staff looks like he's going to be someone that was uh, very connected with the Democratic Party back in the 80s and 90s. And to an earlier point Mark made, talking about how every candidate who supported Medicare for all and the Green New Deal won. I don't quite get the logic from some of these moderate Democrats who lost and say, well, we lost because the progressive Democrats pushed us too much on these issues. Think about that for the second. What you're essentially admitting as a moderate Democrat is that you don't have a platform. You let your platform be dictated to you, supposedly by progressive Democrats. That's your problem right there. It's not your policy positions. It's the fact that you apparently don't stand for anything and that you let other elected officials determine where you stand on the issues. I don't care if you're liberal or moderate. Just have your own. Policy, platform, have your own stances. And by the way, that's what I'll get to on these Georgia Senate races, as apparently the uh, Georgia Democratic candidates, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, are apparently using a piecemeal approach when it comes to talking to voters as to why they should vote for them. A piecemeal approach. Just think about how full of crap you sound like if you use a piecemeal approach. Are you really going to listen to someone, a candidate for U.S. Senate, who's going to tell you one thing and then another group of people a different thing? That doesn't work. Stand for something. I don't care if it's liberal or moderate. Come up with a stance and stick with it. In fact, I'm guessing in Georgia, Kelly Leffler is probably a whole lot less popular than John Ossoff. But you know what? She'll probably win because she's authentic. She at least has a consistent message. You know where she stands on the issues. Authenticity is an underrated quality when it comes to politics. Paul Wellstone demonstrated that with the Democratic Party back in the 90s. He won two elections when he was accused of being embarrassingly liberal. But you know what? He embraced that attack, and he won. He even got votes from people who didn't necessarily even agree with his policy positions. But you know what? They liked the fact that he knew where he stood on the issue, so... A good point brought up there by Mark that I have a big problem when moderate Democrats say it's the progressives that caused them to lose. It's not so much about where they stand on the issues. It's the fact that they don't even apparently have any stances on the issues whatsoever. That's why you lost those elections back a couple of weeks ago is that for the most part, people probably didn't know where you stood on the issues. You can't just sit there and use a so-called piecemeal approach that that apparently uh, John Ossoff is going to use in Georgia. Like I said, I'm guessing if you were to look at their favorability ratings, he would probably be a whole lot more favorable than his Republican opponent, Kelly Loeffler. But you know what? Loeffler's probably going to win because she's viewed as being more authentic. Patrick looked like you wanted to chime in on that too.
1: Uh, not, on that particular subject, okay. it was something we talked about before uh, we got the phone call. So, if we want to come back to it after the break, we can do Yeah, that. let's
0: do that. I got a few more quick hitter news stories to get to you. So, we'll, we'll get Patrick's Take. I got to come up with a better acronym for that or like a better feature. Patrick's something. Give me a word that starts with a P. All right, we'll come up with that during the break. Uh, we'll talk about what Patrick's thinking about. Also, get to some quick hitter news stories up next here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson.
1: Minnesota's original appliance specialist, Warner Stelling, has the largest selection of in-stock appliances in the state, and you won't pay a penny more ever. Now get an extra 5% Black Friday savings. Shop thousands of in-stock appliances in-store or at warnerstellion.com. Warner Stelling is the world's top-rated brands at prices you'll love. Plus, get safe, free local delivery and haul from our trusted specialists. Don't miss Warner Stellion's Black Friday savings event.
0: M950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, back for the final segment of FYI Politics with Brett Schatz. And we're short on time, so I'll just give you the gist of what this AP article was talking about with these two special Senate elections in Georgia. Essentially, what they said when it came to strategy is that for Democrats, they're seemingly taking a more piecemeal and voter-by-voter approach, while Republicans are pushing a broad branding message through mass media. Gee, I wonder which of those strategies is going to be more successful, the person who has a consistent message or the guy who's going to uh, tell you one thing and then tell another group of voters a different thing? piecemeal approaches are not going to work. Like I said, authenticity is a very underrated quality in politics. Paul Wellstone demonstrated that back in the 90s. You can look back at some of those old attack ads that were run against him where he was accused of, I believe the exact quotas, of being embarrassingly liberal. But you know what? He embraced that, that label and he still won both in 1990, 1996, and he probably would have won also in 2002. So Stand for something if you're running for political office, no matter if you're on the more progressive side or even on the moderate side. Heck, I even liked back when he was running for president in 2019 John Delaney. I didn't like his policy positions, but you know what? He was an unabashed moderate. That's why I called myself, uh, kind of funnily, a uh and kind of humorously a Delaniac. I didn't like his policy positions, but you know what? He at least was consistent, and he at least was upfront about the fact that he is a moderate. If we're going to have moderate Democrats in Congress or the White House or wherever else, I would at least like them to not try to hide where they stand on the issues and tell one group of voters one thing and another group of voters another thing. So, yeah, not feeling real confident about these races down in Georgia, unless perhaps the uh, Dems uh, switch up their campaign tactics. 95294662059529466205 Let's get to a couple quick hitter news stories before we uh, wrap things up today. (laughs) This one a little bit on the lighter side. I like this out of Louisville, Kentucky. Apparently there's a restaurant there that is offering free food for any Trump supporters who are willing to turn in their merchandise related to him. Anyone with Trump-related themed gear such as flags, caps, or t-shirts can submit them to the Pollo Gourmet Chicken Restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, and receive a free entree, side, and drink. As you might expect, though, they've gotten quite a bit of hate on social media for uh, making that proposal, especially from a lot of those Trump supporters. Now, Patrick, I know you wanted to chime in with something from an earlier conversation, so uh, let's get your take on what you're thinking about now.
1: So we were talking about both at the state and the national level that The Republicans are already putting in contingency plans in case certain candidates get picked for certain positions, and it's just getting kind of frustrating because I feel like the Republicans are always one step ahead of us Mm -hmm. on this every single time. It doesn't matter how far back you go. It doesn't matter what level. It just seems like they're always a step ahead, and we just can't quite get up to them, and it's just getting really frustrating. That it is. They're playing chess and we're playing checkers. I don't
0: like any of the politics of Mitch McConnell, but what I will give him is that he is one of the most talented parliamentarians we've probably ever had in American history. The guy might be a terrible person slash politician, but he knows how to take advantage of parliamentary procedures He's brilliant at that, as are a lot of other Republicans, and yeah, they're doing the same thing in the state Senate by promoting this dfl It looks like they're going to be possibly promoting this dfl David Tomasoni, president of the Senate in anticipation of having a potential open seat. A lot of planning ahead, but smart on their part. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Well, one guy who is seeking to be the chair of the Democratic National Committee is Jamie Harrison. He, of course, was the Democratic Senate candidate in South Carolina who attempted to unseat Lindsey Graham. Uh, My answer to that would be, no, let's not make Jamie Harrison the chair of the DNC, simply because if you look at uh, how he did in that South Carolina election, lost by about 13 percentage points, which was supposed to be a somewhat competitive race, turned out to be not so competitive, and I feel like it would largely be more of the same from the DNC, where you would be having more of an emphasis just on fundraising and raising money and less so on trying to actually get people to vote for you. It's a problem the DNC has had for years and years and years, so we'll see who becomes the chair of the DNC. Hopefully it's not Tom Perez, though, after the debacle we had uh, last fall with some of those down-ballot races. All right, coming up on the show tomorrow, I am going to be speaking with someone who is a former U.S. attorney who actually prosecuted a number of right-wing terrorists in the 90s and the 2000s. We're going to be speaking with him about some of the common threads we hear about in some of these plots that a lot of domestic terrorists try to implement. It's a really fascinating conversation I recorded a few days ago. We'll be playing that back on my show tomorrow, so make sure you stay tuned for that and more here on AM 950. I'm about out of time for my show today. We got Matt McNeil coming up next.